have had a number of things take place already this morning. There was a part of me that just wanted to continue to worship the Lord and to call people up so that we could just begin to worship and pray. But I've got a word today that fits this. The Lord has spoken to my heart and I want to share with you a a passage of Scripture that I believe will become food for you that are going through such difficulty in your life right now. I'm so thankful for a God that does not forget us, but knows exactly what we need. The title of my message today is, In God We Nearly Trust. In God We Nearly Trust. And for those of you who have been with us for the past several weeks, this is continuing in the series of identity theft that we have been looking in the book of Ephesians about who we are, who God says that we are when we are part of His family. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you a message about we are afflicted. I said, that's not the most popular thing we read in the Bible. And for those of you that are guests here today, and this is the first time you've come here, this isn't always the subject matter. But I want you to know that our God recognizes that we live in real life in a real world. And that just because you're a follower of Christ does not mean that your life will be like walking through a rose garden forever after that. But the Bible does have some things to say to us about how we can be overcomers. And I'm going to ask that you would turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 3 through 19. And I'm going to ask you just to put a finger in there. Because of time, I'm not going to read it all this morning, but we're going to go through this in just a few minutes, verse by verse. But a few years ago, I took a three-day cod fishing trip out of Montauk Point in Long Island with four other pastor friends of mine that enjoy fishing. We boarded the boat at 9 o'clock at night because it was an all-night trip to get to the fishing grounds where we were going in the Gulf of Maine. And it was a beautiful evening and the seas were calm and we're sitting there. For any of you that have ever been on kind of a party boat, there was probably 50 or 60 of us on this boat and it was big enough that each of us had, they had little bunks lined on the inside of the walls where we could nap if we needed to. And So we're all sitting outside on the chairs with our feet up on the rail, just enjoying the evening, looking forward to the the fun that we were going to have as we took off. And as the boat began to leave, we were all bragging about, you know, we could all be a captain of this boat and all the things that we thought that we could do. And uh, the next morning as the whistle went off at about 8 o'clock in the morning, as the captain was letting us know that we were about 10 or 15 minutes from the fishing ground and we needed to take our places. And we enjoyed 36 hours of phenomenal fishing. It was just fantastic. In fact, we were having so much fun tanning and fishing and laughing and napping that we failed to notice that behind us, the direction we had come, there was a huge storm beginning to boil up there. The captain came on the horn and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that the smooth trip that you had coming out is not going to be the same trip you have going back. And as the night began to fall, as we began to make our 12-hour journey back home, we recognized that our path was going to lead us right into this storm. Suddenly, all the bragging about the Royal Ranger knots that we knew quit. Suddenly, all the bragging about, well, I can navigate by the stars. Let me tell you something. When you can't see a star, you don't know where you're at. When the wind is blowing sideways and the waves are high, you shut up really, really quickly about what you know and what you don't know. I noticed that the captain's voice changed in the tone and he began to become very more deliberate and decisive. And he he told some people where to sit and he told other people 
other people what he needed to do. And he told all of us, I need you to stay away from the rails because the swales are going to get to be 15 to 20 feet high. I want you to know that's when I learned that a swell in an ocean is not swell. I looked around and I noticed that everybody on the boat was doing exactly what the captain told them that they should be doing. We didn't exactly know why. We just knew we had to have somebody that knew what was going on. Now, prior to the storm, we were bragging. In the middle of the storm, we were listening. And the conclusions that we came through in the middle of that boat going up and down and slamming into the bottom and a wave of seasickness that hit 50 or 60 of us that loved the land was that we had to learn to trust the captain. We knew that the captain was a friend of ours. We knew that our safety mattered to him. We knew that he cared for us. And we knew that out of everybody on the boat, we trusted him more than anybody else. And I recognize today, the chances are in your life, you have faced storms. And if not yet, you probably will. Some of you have been hit by the waves of sudden unemployment, financial stability that is lost. You've been hit by the wave of the wind of sudden illness or injury or an unexpected terminal report from a doctor. Perhaps you've been hit by the wind and the waves of marriage issues and family stress. Parents that have been hit by the wind of children that are making poor choices. Children that are living in households that are facing the storms of parents who are constantly enraging one another. In the typhoons of life, we must trust the captain. We begin to ask ourselves these questions. Does God know what He's doing? And if God is all-powerful, can He get us out of this? And if God is so loving, why did He allow the storm in the first place? Why didn't He plot a different course to make my life easier? Why is it that I have to go through this? And can you say about God as your captain the same thing that we said about ours? That I know He knows what is best. That I know that I don't know what is best. And I know that He cares. I know that He cares. Because in order to trust God when times are difficult, we have to, number one, trust in God's sovereignty. Now, in your bulletin, in one of the flaps, there is a, a short outline of this message. And I have listed for you a ton of Scripture verses that you are not going to have time to look them all up. I'm going to read them, and I'm going to read them in different versions because of the way the wording is that fits well with what I'm trying to describe. And you can take that with you, and you can begin to look them up because there are some people that believe that when you become a follower of Christ, that if God is faithful to you, that your life will be filled with blessing after blessing and that nothing bad will ever happen. I want you to know something. The Scripture has some things to say to us about the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> To confess that God is sovereign, which means that He knows everything that is going on and that He not only knows everything that's going on, but He designed everything that's going on and He will lead you to the things that are happening in your life and that He has regal authority and veto power over everything that happens to everyone and everywhere, then you need to know that God is sovereign. So let me give you some scriptures to support God's sovereignty. And I'm reading these again from different versions. Psalm 115.3 said, Our God is in heaven and He does whatever pleases Him. Isaiah 43.13 From eternity to eternity, 
I am God. In other words, from before anything existed to after everything quits existing, I am still God. No one can oppose what I do and no one can reverse my action. Isaiah 46.10 Only I can tell you what's going to happen even before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish. Ephesians 1.11 He chose us from the beginning and all things happen just as He decided long ago. Jesus had an interesting conversation with Pilate just before he was beaten and crucified. And he looked at Pilate and he said this after the declaration was given. He said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, what's about to happen to me, what you're taking me through, is being allowed to happen because the power has been given to you to do it. Not because you carry that power. Jeremiah rhetorically inquired, Can anything happen without the Lord's permission? In Lamentations 3. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says, God has the power to do as He pleases among the angels in heaven and among all those who live on earth. No one can stop Him or challenge Him saying, What do you mean by doing all these things? 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 15 says, God is the blessed controller of all things. He's the king over all kings and the master over all masters. We begin to get an idea that in the Scriptures from the Old Testament to the New, from the prophets to the poets to the preachers, they all are unanimous in their course that God directs the affairs of humanity and knows everything that is happening and nothing takes place in your life without His knowledge or His permission. He knows it all. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son sustains all things by His powerful Word. Acts 17.25 says, He Himself gives life and breath to everything, and He satisfies every need that there is. I love the words of King David. When in Psalm 139, that's a psalm I encourage you to read the entirety of it, but there's a part that says in verse 16, In your book was written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet not one of them was. In other words, Lord, you wrote a book about my life before I ever came to this earth. Every day was ordained and planned by you before I even started to live them. The truth is that Christians often get discouraged because of afflictions and we feel guilty about it and we feel unsure about what we should do about it. After all, we know in our hearts that God is good. We know that God loves us and so when it seems as if we're going through the difficulties of life that are contrary to what we know about God, we instantly begin to think, something is not right in my Christianity. I must be doing something wrong if I'm going through this because we know that God loves us and He gives us grace. And when we suffer, we begin to ask God, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to do to change this? How can I get through this quickly? Tell me what I need to do, Lord Jesus. Or even we pray, Lord God, would you calm the storm? Remove everything. Give me peace back, O Lord. And in the middle of times that we're going through that we don't understand, when our prayers for deliverance and relief don't seem to be being answered. We begin to entertain thoughts that either God is loving but doesn't have the power to intervene on our behalf, 
that He's sitting on the outside of our life and He's wringing His hands going, Oh, if I just had the power to help you, I would do it. I love you so much, but I'm powerless. Or we run to the other extreme and we begin to think that God is powerful. He has the authority and the power to do anything and He's looking down and He goes, I just really don't care. I'm not involved in your life. I just started this earth, set it spinning, and everything is on its own after that. And we then believe or develop thoughts that perhaps God is unloving and uncaring toward our dilemma. But according to the Bible, of which we base our faith life, according to the Bible, the problem is not the strength or kindness of God, but the problem is the agenda of the human race. Listen to this. I was rehearsing my prayers this week during devotions as I was preparing this. And I begin to think about everything that I had asked of God. And as your pastor, I want you to know that the things that are upon your life and the burdens that you carry, Pastor Mark and Pastor Jeff and Pastor Julie and I, we we pray for you and we, we agonize with you in the things that you're going through and we hurt with you. And so we begin to pray things like this. Lord, give us all good health. God bless you. Give us good health, Lord. We want good health. Lord, if I was writing the plan for my life, here's the way it would look. We want long life, pain-free. Help me remember names better. Lord, while we're praying, since You're the God of everything and You can do anything, Lord, we want a good income. We want a good night's sleep. We want a good retirement. And I begin to recognize that oftentimes in our prayer life, our priority becomes we. Becomes we. Lord, I promise I'll give you all the glory if my life is easy. I thought about that and I thought, you know, it's like the way for those of you that have children that are in that two years old, uh, 102 year old range, that are constantly demanding their own way. My daughter... And, and husband and their family live in the state of Washington, so the only way we keep up with our kids is by what she posts on Facebook. And she posted this little video of my grandson who, because she wasn't giving him candy before he went to bed, he sat on the stairs and he goes, I'm running away. And so she took her little phone out and began to record, and she goes, okay, so why are you running away? Because every other mother would give me candy before I went to bed. She said, so what are you saying? That you don't think I love you? No, I don't think you love me. I'm running away. Of course, we all laugh at that. And then I thought, that sounds exactly like my prayers. I'm sorry, Lord, you don't love me. If you did, you'd make my life easy. I'm going to go find another mother. The difference in our priority and our agenda and God's is this. God's priority is that He be glorified in your life. You see, the Scripture tells us in Psalm 19.1 why He created the heavens. It says, the heavens were created to declare. Another word for that is to shout the glory of God. Now, on one of those rare nights in Syracuse when we can actually go outside and see the stars, I would encourage you to stand there for a moment and look up. And, and maybe you're like me and you're trying to fathom what it's like because the, the Bible describes that the heavens never end. Can't comprehend that, but I sure like to try And so we stand there and we look up into the night and we see the sky and we see the stars and we see the moon and we see all the the planets and occasionally we see a plane whipping through there. And we're looking at that and we're, we're realizing the vastness of all that and God says, I did that just to flaunt how great I am. 
Because I want you to know that the priority of the existence of everything is to bring glory to me. And so in those moments when you think you have a bad, stand outside and look up there and recognize, I made it all to declare my glory to you. And so we ask our question, ask this question of ourselves. Why do people struggle? Why do they have afflictions? And two weeks ago I listed 14 different biblical afflictions that are listed for us. And I encourage you, if you weren't here, you can go onto the website and listen to those because it gives some instruction to those things. But there are reasons why we go through things. And the Bible tells us that the reason that we go through struggles and afflictions is because God wants to display His glory through it. God wants to do something in your life that everybody will recognize only God could do that. In Isaiah chapter 48, verses 10 and 11, in the New American Standard Bible, it says this, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Chances are that's not one of the scriptures you underlined as a promise in your Bible. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, he repeats, I will act. In other words, there are times when God leads our lives through afflicted times, times of difficulty. And He does it because what He wants to do in you and through you will declare the glory of the Lord to everybody else around you. Isaiah 63, 14 said, You lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. In other words, from the moment that we received relationship with Christ, we received His forgiveness and begin to walk, our lives no longer belong to ourselves but belong to Him and He will work your life and, and manipulate the path you, you walk on under His truth so that your life gives Him glory. It gives Him glory. I discovered that when I wake up in the morning, heaven doesn't ask, how can I make Doug happy today? Heaven asks, how can I use Doug to reveal my excellencies? How can I use each of my people to reveal to the world how excellent I am? Now, he may use blessings to do that. And for those of you that are going through a period of your life where you are just blessed abundantly, then give glory to God because it's nothing you did. It was the hand of God that brought blessing into your life so that He can be declared in excellency. He also may use affliction and suffering. You're going, well, it's, Lord, I do better praising you and blessing. Just want, if, you, if I have the choice, Lord, I'm a great blessing praiser. But the afflictions are so hard. But He may use affliction and suffering because both belong to him. Isaiah 45, 7 says this, I am the one who creates the light and makes the darkness. I am the one who sends good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. Ecclesiastes 7, 14 says, Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Now, I know I'm messing with some of your theology. Because your theology was, boy, you know, God, I come to you and it's all good. No, you come to God and you never walk alone after that. There's a difference. Do you know that biblically there's a difference between living in joy and living in happiness? That joy, you can be a joyful individual and still be going through hard times in your life. Because the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Not the happiness of the lifestyle I'm living. But the joy, a deep-seated knowledge that 
There's nothing happening in your life that God hasn't either permitted or knows about. And somehow, He's going to get the glory out of all of it if you will simply obey Him through it. And we remember that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, wrote this letter to Ephesians when he was in prison. His letter was likely written by a man that's lying on a cold dirt floor in the dark that he can barely see in. He probably had an aching body from being beaten repeatedly. And he didn't ignore his condition. And he exhorted his brothers and sisters in Ephesus, don't lose heart during their difficulties. He goes, don't lose heart on the fact that I'm going through this and don't lose heart on the things that you're going through. He understood that we tend to lose heart and we lose willpower when we are being afflicted and when we watch others that we love go through suffering that we don't think they should have to go through. Two times when we're going through it and when the people we love and we sit back and go, I don't understand, God. I don't know what's going on. And we begin to lose heart. And so how can we, like the Apostle Paul, learn that we can suffer affliction without losing our affection? That we can suffer affliction without losing our affection. So what's the secret? How do we avoid discouragement? How do we avoid getting bitter in our heart or or being filled with unbelief or getting angry or, or being depressed or going into discouragement or indifference or even worse, how do we avoid saying, God, obviously you don't care and then turning and running in rebellion? I want you to know that Paul did not give three easy steps to get victory in these things. This man who was writing from a prison cell who recognized that God was in charge of everything but his condition was in the hands of unbelieving people began to give us some secrets of strength in the Lord but it was not going to be easy steps. He didn't give us a quick fix plan. He didn't put on his tough guy act and say, if you'll just toughen up, you can move on in Christ. You're just such a weakling. Didn't say anything like that. I also want you to notice, as you look at the Scripture in a moment, that God, through Paul, did not, that Paul did not take a hyper-spiritual stance either. He didn't quote a lot of Bible verses promising nothing but blessing. He didn't promote the idea that your life in Christ will be nothing but goodness. He didn't say that if you're doing this Christian thing right and that if you have enough faith that you'll overcome all of that because if you're going through affliction, it must indicate weakness in your life. Because we hear that proclaimed today in some circles. He didn't even stand and say that if affliction is coming on you, that you and the authority of God can stand there and say, I do not receive that. He looked at things very realistically. And here's what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesians chapter 3. Look with me as we begin at verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, in order that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, in order that you may be rooted and established in love, that you may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge in order that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Now you may have noticed as I read this passage that I didn't read it exactly like your Bible says in whatever version you're looking at because I interjected Three different times the phrase, in order that, and the reason I did that is because it's there in the Greek. 
in the original writings in order that was listed three times. It creates for us an interesting ladder of growth as you look at this Scripture. It's a sequence of progressions that one is built upon another. Sometimes there are things that happen that lead to something else happening, that leads to something else happening. And in this progression, the ultimate end of it, if you would read verse 21, is that God gets all the glory. God is glorified. So as we look at these steps, notice first of all that it says that He strengthens you. He strengthens you. In verse 16, I pray that out of His glorious riches that He may strengthen you with power through your Spirit in your inner being. Paul, writing from prison, writing to a, a church that was going through affliction, they were being persecuted, didn't say to them, if you were doing this right, nothing like this would happen to you. He says, I want you to know that in the middle of this, there's a strength available to you that you have never known before. There's a power that can hold you and sustain you. In fact, in this prayer that Paul is praying for the Ephesians, he calls on God to activate a power within his believing children. He says, Lord, give them something. Activate this power which may never be known to you were it not the afflictions that you go through. For those of you that are athletes and runners... You punish yourself to get better times. You go through heartache, and as you do that, you build up a strength and a stamina. And at the end of that, sometimes you look at a stopwatch and you've set new personal records. It would have never come if you'd have just sat on the couch. It came through effort and work and heartache at times. But you learn something. So it is that when we are going through difficult times, God activates within us a power so that He gets the glory. But also recognize this. Most of the battles that we fight during times of affliction and suffering within our lives are battles that are going on on the inside. It's our thoughts. It's our temptations. It's our beliefs. It's our faith. We begin to question God's love for us. That is why the Bible tells us that Paul says that God has given to us His Holy Spirit to fight these inner battles. The battles of your heart, the battles of your mind, the battles of your feeling. God gives us the Spirit. In fact, today is Pentecost Sunday. Today we celebrate the coming and the moving of the Holy Spirit that baptized 120 and they begin to speak in other tongues and they walk from that place with a new power that was demonstrated in their life that God could get the glory through their lives. And I recognize this morning as I look at the clock, there's no way I'm going to be able to get through all of this. So I'll tell you what I think God wants you to hear today. The very name of the Spirit of God in many different parts of the Bible is the Spirit of Might. A Spirit of Might. A Spirit of Power. Some of you so desperately need today that the Holy Spirit would reveal Himself to you in the conditions of your life today with a spirit of might in your inner man. Where you can begin to stand up and say, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I trust the Captain who does. And I pray that you would reveal in me a spirit of might. Give me the power, God, that I can remain faithful in all of this, that I can continue to press in on you. That, Lord, I know the victory will come one way or the other, but give me a spirit of power on the inside of me that sustains me and keeps me from questioning what's going on in my life. The Bible says that on the day of Pentecost, 
He spoke about those that were endued with power from on high because He wanted them to know that the power was not a resonant power within them. It wasn't something of their own nature that they were able to activate at a moment's notice to make them get through, but it was something that God delivered to His people just at the time they needed it. So if you think you can do this on your own, you're going to be sadly mistaken. He promised His believers that we would receive power. When we read of people that were full of the Holy Ghost, they were full of power, the Scripture says. And according to the teaching of the Apostle, God had given us the spirit of power, which is also the spirit of love and the spirit of a sound mind. Do you know why He said that? Because He knows that the enemy attacks our thinking process. He knows that the enemy's greatest weapon against you is beginning to cast doubt about your faith. He begins to cast doubt about, does God really know what's going on? He begins to cast doubt in your heart about, do, are you really loved? Does He really know? Does He really care? You begin to focus your attention on others that aren't going through what you're going through. And you begin to think in your mind, God must love them more than me. And He begins to attack your faith. That's what Satan always does. He's the great doubt planter. And in response to that attack, the Lord says, it's not the affliction that you need to worry about. It's the fact that I've given you power from on high for a sound mind, which means I have set up a perimeter around your thinking process. And I want you to know that no matter what you're going through, it is impenetrable to the enemy because you belong to the Lord. For those of you that have never received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, I want you to understand that it is a direct passageway between God and your spirit. The spirit-baptized life is the secret passageway that God has directly to your inner man, directly to your inner being. We sometimes ascribe Satan with greater powers than he really has. Satan can't read your mind. He knows your actions. He can determine a lot about us by the way we respond, but he does not know your thoughts. God does. And when you and I act as those that are full of the Holy Spirit, the Lord begins to open that passageway directly from His heart and His mind to your heart and your mind. And in the pureness of that communication in a Spirit-filled life, He begins to fill you with what you need in every aspect of life. You see, you and I act with each other from the outside. We see the outside. We make judgments about people from what we see on the outside. But God deals with us on the inside. We wish one another blessings, but God gives those blessings on the inside. We try to train and educate and to influence by the presentation of motives and the urging of reason. But God begins from His Spirit to yours to minister to you on the inside, working His way out to change your heart and life. He can plant in your heart by His divine husbandry the seed that shall blossom in you that will ultimately bring you to eternal life and immortal life. Because He plants that seed. And the indwelling Spirit will be a power that is available to you in new dimensions during times of suffering. In fact, there's a parallel passage that we find in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. The Scripture says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience 
with joy. The very fact that this scripture is included in there indicates to us that there will be times when God will either lead us or allow times of affliction or suffering within our life. And listen, friends. Because we are such needy people, the Divine Spirit gives us what we need for patience and endurance. There's that P word that we all hate. Patience. When I was sitting inside that boat when the swells were 20 feet high, I got sick as a dog. I remember begging God, Lord, who's the Jonah on here that I can throw overboard and we can get this calmed right out? I also look back on that experience and it was another one of those times I began to confess sins I hadn't even created yet. I was begging God, get us off this boat. In fact, for two days I would lay in my bed and the whole room's just going around. But I learned to trust the captain. Both the captain of the boat and the captain of my soul. You see, these are qualities that you can't produce on your own. This patience and endurance. You have to rely on the inwardness of the Holy Spirit within your life to bring those. So the dark times of every life, there will be times that are so dark that you'll be full of discouragements and full of dreariness and full of sadness and loneliness and bitter memories and fading hopes that drag down our heart. That if we are to be strong, that we must have a strength that will manifest itself when we are at our weakest and that touches us at the moments when we need it the most. That when we are learning to weep and we learn to submit, that we understand that that power comes from a Holy Spirit who is working on the inside of us because He has access to us there. So, Paul says, I pray you'll be strengthened. He also prayed... I pray that you will let Him dwell in you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, being rooted and established or grounded and firmly planted in love. The wording within this particular verse appealed at that particular time to both, both men and women. He talked about being grounded. In other words, it was, a, it was a construction term about making sure that your foundation was built well. And then He spoke to the women who at that time were oftentimes the one that did the planting. And so He's saying... I need both of you and every understanding of every, uh, of every gender to understand that God needs to dwell in your hearts because He wants to build a strong foundation. He wants to give you deep roots. And honestly, I wish I had more time this morning to develop this thought because I think that as a church and as Christians, we often fly over this and, and it needs to be underscored what it means to us that Christ Jesus through His Holy Spirit indwells us. We see the Scripture that says that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning that the moment that we receive His forgiveness and ask Him to come into our life, He comes into your life and He lives there. He lives there. In moments that you feel alone, you're not alone. He lives there. When you're in your suffering and you're feeling like you're all by yourself, you're not by yourself. He lives there. He's dwelling in you. The God of the universe made a home inside of you by His Holy Spirit that He can do His work there. He's building you, developing you. And we need to understand that in this both comes God's, God's mission and His operation. His mission is to save your soul. 
His mission was to come and bring salvation to you so that when you believed and you received what He did as a substitutionary work on the cross for you, that your name would be written in the Lamb's book of life and that you would be saved. But don't stop there because there's an operation of the Holy Spirit that's required of us after that. And that is that Christ would indwell us by His Spirit. He actually abides there. You say, that's kind of mystical. You know what? We need a little bit more mystical in our Christian walk. Because if it's not mystical, it becomes mechanical. We can go through the motions. We can become satisfied with just attending. We can be happy that we know the songs that we sing and we can turn around and walk out of the church having been in a mechanical service without ever having touched the Spirit of God in reality. We can tell the stories to our kids of the way things used to be. But I serve a God that is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. He's a God that wants to be involved in your life. And one of the reasons that we have a generation of people in our country that seems so lost is because they've never seen the demonstrated power of God in its mystical form at work within the believer's life. You say, Pastor, that gets a little weird. You know what? I would rather contain wildfire than have no fire at all. The Bible will instruct us of how we can pastor a moving of God. But I so desperately long for a time when we walk out of the house of God and we are walking in a power that we've never experienced before. Because if we become mechanical, then 2 Timothy chapter 3, 5 is what begins to fit us. We begin to have a form of godliness, but we deny the power. We know the right thing to do, but we don't see anything real. You know why the church is ridiculed? Because people don't see the reality of God in us. They call us hypocrites because we live just like they do, but we come to church and raise our hand and we say we're better off. Oh, God, shake us to our foundation. Shake us to our foundation. That we would have a little of the mystical power of the Holy Spirit in us. Have something that's alive and real. So many of you, many of you may have had the opportunity to fly on, on an airplane at night. As you're flying over, you look out and you see spots of light over here and spots of light over there and spots of light over there. And then there's vast segments of darkness between them. And we all recognize those are little towns. And occasionally you'll see a little flicker of a light here and a little flicker of a light out there. But vast areas of darkness between the light. And, and I believe that that probably represents people's spiritual lives in many ways. You go from having a splash of the presence of the Lord here and then you go through weeks or months of darkness. Then you come running back to God and you have a little splash of light and renewal here. And then there's another great space of darkness. And, and I believe that God desires when He lives within us that we would have a continual string of light. That His presence stays with us and, and builds with us and lives with us and strengthens us. And that if He were to look at it from the top, you would see a light that never quits shining. There's no darkness. There's no moments when He's not with you. There's no moments when He's not strengthening you. And there's no moments when we don't seek Him but that there's something renewing within our soul. And for those of you that are going through struggles right now, let me tell you something. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that He is a God that is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. 